Jodcast. Already failed our New Year's resolution to get shows out on time. With Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasani, Samuel Leske, Fiona Porter, Emma Alexander, Laura Dreesen, Michael Wright, Roca Cepeda Aroita, and Mariam Rashid. The Jodcast, January 2020 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Fiona, and joining me in the studio are Emma and Laura. Hello. Hey. In the show this time, Rocky and Mariam interview Alexander Lazarin about magnetic fields in astronomy, and Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasanu, and Samuel Lesky take a look at what's happening in the January night sky. But first, before all that, here's Mike with this month's news. Welcome. In the news over the past month, the launch and testing of the Kiops mission and a possibly volcanically active Venus. So first up, in late December, the Kiops mission launched. It stands for Characterising Exoplanet Satellite, and as the name suggests, it's a mission aimed at determining better the properties of exoplanets. The main goal will be to look for transiting exoplanets that have already been discovered, and make accurate measurements of their size. We can combine this with good estimates of their mass, which we should get from transiting, and then from that we can get an average density. Average density should give us a reasonable idea of their composition. It won't be perfect as we're using a planetary average, but as you can expect, we can compare this to the density of known materials and the planets that we know, and get a reasonable idea of what they're made of. Other goals of the mission include detecting transits for exoplanets which have previously been discovered by other methods, for example radial velocity measurements. As I said, it was launched late December, and on the 8th of January, the telescope electronics were turned on. Everything has gone so far as planned. The CCD has also been tested by taking a picture with the telescope cover closed. As we know, this should produce a dark picture, and it gives us a good indication of whether the imaging systems are working. And as of now, it's very expected. The temperature's stable, and the electronics are working well. Interestingly, Kiops wasn't the only satellite in that launch. It was a secondary payload to a satellite of the Italian Space Agency, a second-generation Cosmos Skybed satellite, and three CubeSats were also launched in the same rocket. Cosmos Skybed is, at the moment, a constellation of four satellites used by the Italian Space Agency for radar-based observations of Earth, so observations from the sky focusing, as the name Skybed suggests, on the area around the Mediterranean. The satellites are coming to the end of their expected life, so Generation 2 was commissioned around 2015. It'll be two satellites, this one and another launched sometime this year, which aim to replace the old constellation. They should also make some improvements to the quality of the image they can record, for example the improvement on the spatial resolution that they can see down to. One of the CubeSats in the launch is also quite an interesting idea. It's called OpsSat, and it's designed to be a platform to experiment with mission control for satellites using more powerful computers. You see, if there's new control system software that the European Space Agency wants to test, they can test it using this and not have to weigh up whether it's worth risking on a satellite which is doing useful studies of the universe. It helps solve an interesting problem which occurs in the control of satellites as well as many other fields. Techniques that could improve the field 
may not be tried out because they risk failure and there's a research loss if they do fail. OPSAT is specifically designed to test these sorts of developments. The way it works is you have two parts, the bus of the satellite which contains the infrastructure used to operate it and the payload, this is how many satellites work. In this case, the payload can take control of the satellite. However, you've still got this bus which monitors the satellite and can retake control using its more established flight control methods if it needs to. This should help test some more advanced control systems before they get used on larger, more expensive projects. Another thing that happened in the news recently was a study about volcanism on Venus which suggests the planet may still be volcanically active. So to set this up, we know in the recent past Venus had volcanism because of infrared and visible thermal images of lava flows from the Venus Express orbiter. The atmosphere will cause oxidation on the surface. This will have an effect on the emissivity of that surface in the wavelengths we're viewing them. Younger lava flows are going to be less weathered and they'll have a higher emissivity. We'll see more infrared from them in a particular time window. It's an idea that's been used before, however it does need experimental constraints on the time scales for those materials we expect to see in lava flows to weather. So a recent paper measures the near-infrared spectra of olivine, crystal expected to be produced in these lava fields, as the surface of Venus is largely basaltic, and olivine generally gets produced on Earth in these sort of environments. They use a furnace to create high temperatures, however it's worth noting that this was done under Earth's atmosphere, which may mean a difference between it and the results of the surface of Venus, which is a weakness that was mentioned in the paper. It throws up something very interesting though. The crystals became coated in oxidation at the temperatures that they used within about a month. To quote the paper, after one month of oxidation at 900 degrees C, the VNIR spectra showed no features characteristic of olivine, i.e. the broad 1000 nanometer absorption, even though the bulk sample remained predominantly olivine. They also measured samples at 600 degrees C, which is a lot closer to the actual surface temperature of Venus, and those samples showed reduced effects of olivine. Now, it may be that the different atmosphere on Venus changed the time scale of this somewhat. But the finding of a timescale of weeks to months for this effect could suggest that the lava flows on Venus may be very recent, not just hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years recent, but as in within the last few years. And if that's true, then Venus currently has volcanic activity. The paper finishes by pointing out that this would fit in well with the discovery of spikes in the concentration of sulphur in the atmosphere of Venus which have been measured by both the Pioneer Venus Orbiter and the Venus Express satellite. Those spikes in concentration may then have been the result of some form of eruption or volcanic activity. That's all this month. Back to the studio. Thanks for that, Mike. Now Roque and Mariam interview Alexander Lazarian about magnetic fields in astronomy. Okay, we are very fortunate today to have with us Professor Alex Lazarian, who has been visiting various institutions over the last few months. He is visiting from the University of Wisconsin. He started his research in the theoretical group of Professor Ginsberg, and we are just very fortunate to have him with us. 
So. Welcome, Alex. So, Alex has studied a lot of different things. Could you give a summary of all the things that you've been looking at during your research? Well, I've been studying uh, different things, but a lot of my studies were related to the properties of magnetized plasma. Plasma is a special state of matter. It's not so common in the Earth conditions, but it's uh, the natural state of matter in uh, the universe in general. So if you have gas and you ionize it, you get plasma. And as you ionize the gas and get plasma, it starts acceptable to magnetic field action. So positive and negative charges start spiraling around magnetic fields, and this creates the picture of magnetized plasma. So most of the astrophysical processes that we are dealing with are related to magnetized plasma. So one question is that to most of us, and even physicists, Magnetic fields are a bit of an abstract concept in that they're invisible, we cannot really directly see them, but they are an essential part of your research. And one of the things that we are interested in is in studying the distribution of these magnetic fields in the galaxy. Why is it important to do that? Well, yes, magnetic fields are mysterious, and this was a mystery from uh, ancient times when magnetism was uh, discovered by human beings. They were finding special pieces of rocks which were behaving very differently from any other rocks. In uh, ancient China, these rocks were used for fortune-telling. These mysterious properties of these pieces of rocks to be aligned with uh, Earth magnetic fields were used by the fortune tellers to persuade humans that this is their destiny. And whatever they do, their destiny will be aligned along a particular line. And it's the fortune tellers who can tell you what is uh, happening. So they were using this mystery of magnetism to actually fool people, to give them money uh, to predict their destiny. Then uh, the second use of this mysterious property was used by Vikings. These guys were not at all into science, but were into robbery and plundering. And they very much loved England. They loved to come to England to rob, plunder, get booty, and get back to Norway. And they were pretty impatient to reach this lovely land. And so they did not want to follow the coastline. They wanted to navigate through the open sea. And to do that, they were using uh, this uh, device, which we now call compass. They were very successful, as we know from the medieval chronicles. They uh, were efficiently using this property of magnetic field. In terms of uh, astrophysics, 
The magnetic fields are the second most important force in astrophysical media. The first is gravity, surely. We have everything, including our planet, made because of the self-gravity. But in all the cases, the collection of plasma is related to the action, counteraction, or effects related to magnetic fields. We know that uh, the star formation is affected by magnetic fields. We know that HNs, active galactic nucleus, and uh, most of the phenomena are affected by magnetic fields. So that makes it so interesting for me to study. So, in a way, we're also future telling by using physics and maths in that they tell us about the destiny and the way star formation, things like cosmic rays, actually work. One of the interesting things that Alexander is doing is creating a 3D map of magnetic fields inside of our galaxy. So I guess the first question is, where did these magnetic fields come from? What did they tell us? And how are you using your predictions to understand what is happening in our own galaxy? In fact, I'm a theorist. And because I'm a theorist, I'm uh, interested in uh, the results that magnetic fields are doing with the physics that is induced by magnetic field interactions. However, there are those limitations of the current techniques of studying magnetic fields, and this induced me to work on techniques to develop magnetic fields. What you are asking is our demonstration of the work of this technique. I hope, in fact, that this powerful technique that we developed can be used by other researchers with publicly available data to study magnetic fields. So, indeed, today I showed this uh, 3D map. But this is just a demonstration of the abilities of these techniques. What is the origin of magnetic field? Well, for decades it was the issue of controversy. Some people were saying that magnetic fields should be generated together with baryonic matter as a primordial magnetic field theory. Now, this theory is out of favor, and it is because more natural theory of magnetic field generation through the motions of the plasma, so-called dynamo theory, can better explain the observations. The interesting thing, and I guess this is the main fundamental reason that separates astrophysics from the rest of physics, is that often in astrophysics we cannot do anything in the lab, in that we cannot simulate a star in the lab, and we cannot create a galaxy and really study it experimentally, so all of the things we know come from our understanding of how physics works. And there are really two sides to that. So one of them is the experimental side, getting your telescope pointed at the sky and looking at the real behavior. And then the other side is your side, in that you take our knowledge of physics and try to make predictions. And so the interesting thing here is, since we cannot just go out into the center of our own galaxy and measure magnetic fields, what physical things can these magnetic fields tell us? Well, uh, I would... Put it differently. 
Astrophysics has three components. First of all, surely observations. Astrophysics is observational science is driven by facts which are collected by instruments. There is also theory. And I separate theory from numerical simulations. Simulations can use our understanding of the process all the fundamental processes to simulate what would be the result in a nonlinear situation so that we are dealing in astrophysical situations. But uh, three components are essential. And what I was discussing today is how to use this fundamental understanding of basic processes happening in turbulent plasma to develop new ways to trace magnetic fields. This is a way how theory can enhance the power of observations, because I was showing how to use the spectroscopic data, which was earlier not used for studies of magnetic fields, to trace magnetic field and to find magnetization. So, this is a part of this big story. And at the same time, you mentioned to me these uh, differences uh, between physical experiment and the astrophysics. Okay, just imagine that we manage to get into the center of the galaxy and measure everything. Yeah. It would be great. It would be great. But it would not solve our problem of understanding. Having this measurement, we need to then to have a theory what is going on. The same is with the numerical simulations. If we manage to create a supercomputer which can reproduce all the features of the center of galaxy, it would not still mean that we understand it. Understanding requires a higher level theory which would explain to you what is happening. You know, for example, if we take gas, just normal gas, there are enormous number of molecules. Potentially, we can simulate the motion of every molecule, and by using a super supercomputer, we can predict the properties of gas. But in fact, it's not theory. We know this ideal and non-ideal laws of gas dynamics, which do not require enormous number of calculations, but do the job. And they accurately can predict what is happening with gas when they heat it, and we extend it, and this is the theory. One of the things that I mentioned before that Alexander is doing, and it's a bit of a counterintuitive but very, very cool part of measuring magnetic fields, is that so he's made a 3D map of magnetic fields in a round galaxy. So, Alexander, when you look at the sky, you're pointing at a specific point, and if you were looking at, say, the galactic plane, there would be many, many different clouds 
that you would be pointing through, right? So effectively, you're looking at the light coming from many, many, many different clouds along that line of sight. So how can we ever make a 3D model of magnetic fields in the galaxy? Okay, there are two different ways of doing that. Is One is using uh, the so-called galactic rotation curve. Our galaxy is rotating, and if we observe different parts of the spectral line, this emission is coming from different parts of the galaxy. So just taking, for example, 21 centimeter emission line, we can identify parts of the galaxy that are responsible for this emission. So this is one way to get the three-dimensional information. So depending where you look on the galaxy, due to the rotation of the galaxy itself, those spectral lines will show up at different frequencies? Uh, well, uh, if you're talking about H1, yeah. wherever you see within the disk of the galaxy, you will see 21 centimeter emission. But this emission will be Doppler shifted due to the motion of the parcel of emitting gas. You will see it at different frequencies. And so measuring part of this emission at a particular range of frequency, we're measuring a particular parcel of gas at uh, some distance from us along one line of sight. This gives one way of studying magnetic field. Using spectroscopic data, we can also use uh, different lines. And these different lines come from different molecular species. And, for instance, in molecular clouds, the different species are produced your chemical process at different depths um, within the molecular cloud. So, also, using uh, these particular species, which are produced only at uh, high optical depth, well within the cloud, we can trace magnetic fields in molecular cloud at a particular distance from the surface of a molecular cloud. And how accurately can you determine the 3D component of where those magnetic fields are inside of our galaxy, or how can we know they're associated to different objects in the galaxy? Well, for each one, we made an experiment, and this experiment or testing was based on the fact that with our three-dimensional map of the perpendicular to the line of sight component of magnetic field, we may predict polarization from different stars. Because as radiation from a star passes through the dust, which is aligned in a spectromagnetic field, it gets polarized. So, using our three-dimensional maps, we made such a prediction, and then we compared with this prediction with the available data of polarization that was directly measured. So, for some stars, we had no both polarization and distance, and for these stars, we made a test, and it was successful. So, Alex, one of the 
interesting things that magnetic fields are important for our B-modes from the cosmic microwave background. Now, what are they and how can magnetic fields help us understand how we can measure those B-modes? In this case, in the case of B-modes, magnetic fields are not helping. They are preventing us from measuring B-modes. B-modes are the polarized fluctuations which are arising from the primordial gravitational waves. So they are carrying information about inflation, about what was happening in the first moments of our universe. But this radiation, polarized radiation, is coming to us and it's being mixed up with the radiation which is uh, produced by our galaxy. And this radiation from our galaxy is also polarized. And the signal that is coming from our galaxy is either a hundred times or maybe even a thousand times stronger than the polarized signal from these B-modes. So, it's very challenging to separate what is the polarization that is coming from our galaxy and what is coming from the early universe. The polarization from our galaxy is related to magnetic fields. So, if we know the structure of magnetic field in our galaxy, then we have hope to be able to separate. If we don't know the structure of magnetic field, we don't have this hope. Therefore, the studies of magnetic field structure are now interrelated to this important cosmological problem of the search of the B-mode. So, if we manage to get good maps of magnetic fields, we have a chance. So, what sort of data do we need to hope to detect those B-modes? Well, first of all, we need to have a new generation of instruments, more sensitive, and which are especially designed to measure polarization. Polarization is pretty tricky, and the experts who develop polarimeters will tell you that you need the experiment which is 100% 100% designed to measure polarization. It cannot be just something in addition to other things. So we need these instruments, we need these investments, and I know that there is work in this direction. However, because the foregrounds are so essential, we need to understand the foregrounds much better. We need to study foregrounds uh, at different frequencies. It's not only dust polarization, it's also polarization coming from synchrotron, which is important. So we need extensive program of studying polarization coming from the foreground. Then we need theory. 
clearer understanding uh, what's going on because we will not be able to measure everything because as you understand when we are measuring the signal it's already a mixture of foreground and CMB. So we need a theory to understand what these foregrounds are doing. Therefore, understanding of this turbulent magnetized plasma is absolutely essential for having good predictions. In addition, we need to have independent ways of predicting this polarization. And the work that I was discussing today is about this. So, we are not using the polarization from these foregrounds to have prediction, because as I said, the measurement is already one plus another, foreground plus background. We predict using the data, which is not polarized, but due to the theory, this data can be used to predict polarization. And we need also numerical simulations that, on the basis of this understanding, can provide us better maps, for example, of the foreground polarization. So all the three components, observation, theory, and numerical simulation, should be present. And using all the three components, I hope we will be able to measure and hopefully soon. Have you got any bets on when B-mode could be finally detected? <laughs> well, it's really difficult to bet, and it's really... In fact, I feel that science is developing too slow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit frustrating. I talk with colleagues who were planning instruments, which are now flying, but... It was many, many years ago, and surely we had more resources, we could move it quicker. But this is the world that we live in, and uh, we have to accept what we have. At the same time, public understanding how important is the fundamental research can help to bring the date when we can say, oh, we definitely know that this was inflation, that at this moment or back in the past, the universe was born, these were their properties. This would be really nice, because we want to understand the mystery of our life, and this birth of the universe is part of this mystery. That's a great note to finish on. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for that, Rocket and Mariam. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So I'm going to be starting us off this uh, this time. Um, this is something which anyone who follows astronomy Twitter will probably have seen people get sort of quietly excited about. Uh, which is what's going on with Beetlejuice. And I should probably say that two more times just to sort of preemptively get our podcast haunted, you know? <laughs> just get it over and done with. <laughs> well, I think that's kind of what happened because we did get really, well, I guess, I guess the Twitter, we're going to find out from you, but the Twitter hype 
is, a, is maybe a little bit too much for what this is. It's still very mm. cool, but maybe a little bit too much hype. Yeah, and I can say it's also seemingly spilled out onto Reddit and Facebook astronomy groups that I'm part of as well. So just the internet is hyped for Beetlejuice. <laughs> yeah, and we do love Beetlejuice. But, mm-hmm. but it might be a little bit premature in this case. So if you have not got caught up in this hype, what's happening is that Beetlejuice, which is one of the stars in the constellation Orion, uh, specifically if you are looking at it, it is the left shoulder, has started dimming. And this is exciting, or potentially exciting, because Beetlejuice is a red supergiant. It's near the end of its life, and we expect it to go nova basically any time soon. With the caveat that's an astronomy anytime soon, which means within the next 100,000 years, because that's astronomy's idea of a short time scale. Uh, it dimming is interesting, though, because at the moment it is the dimmest that we have on record, as far as I'm aware. Uh, normally, it's about the tenth brightest star in the sky, but it's been dimming since October, and I think it's now somewhere last I checked, in the range of maybe the sort of 25th or so. It's it's dropped brightness, but I think it's a factor of 2.5 or something. And we think that something like this could happen in the lead-up to Beetlejuice going Nova. With that said, it could be a sign of Beetlejuice about to go Nova, but we might be getting a little bit excited over nothing, really. Beetlejuice is naturally variable. It periodically brightens and dims. That's quite normal. And what might be happening here is, rather than this dimming being a sign of an imminent nova, it could just be that, coincidentally, two separate dimming processes have happened to overlap. Because there's several cyclic processes which control Beetlejuice's brightness. And what, what kind of things? Oh, I, I wouldn't look into it in too much detail. I think it has something to do with dust around the star um, and mm. possibly some expansion and contraction because yeah, that's a pretty so. standard kind of dimming and brightening mm. oh, yeah, thing I'm, that stars do. Yeah, and I'm sure I've heard there's all sorts of speculation when these things like uh, when things like this happen with dimming stars and dust. Like there was a big thing. Oh, is it a Dyson sphere around a star? Are there aliens harvesting its mm. light and that's why it's going to? Whatever. You're not allowed to say the word alien. I will, I will, I, I will say what I want. Um, I like, I like bringing alien speculation into things. It's never aliens, but it's never fun. aliens. It's never aliens, but it's fun to I, think. I about. think I did read somewhere that basically scientists aren't really all that clear actually on what kind of Beetlejuice does. Even it's sort of quote unquote normal dimming is not a complete mystery, but something that's still not 100% well known. It's definitely something which is still a bit up for speculation, but there is one of the sort of leading theories that I've seen is that there are two separate dimming uh, mechanisms which just happen to have overlapped and brought it to a level which we just haven't seen before. And we can't say this is the dimmest that Beetlejuice has ever been just because the records don't go that far back to that level of precision. But it is it is something which I think at this point you can actually observe to a certain extent. It's dim sufficiently that it's certainly, at this point, dimmer than Aldebaran as of the time of recording. It may have started to tick back up by the time this gets out. For all we know, it could have gone supernova in the time since since we've recorded this. Who knows? And in that case, our scepticism is going to sound just incredibly tiring. 
Well, I mean, when it does go over, we will know about it. Yeah, and actually, I was I was reading up. Um, I, I saw a little bit about this yesterday um, because, kind of separate to Beetlejuice, um, LIGO um, found well, it, it triggered an alert for an intermediate mass black hole uh, collision, gravitational wave, mm-hmm. um, and that got a lot of people excited because even though these things cover a huge amount of the sky, usually the localization isn't great on them. Um, when, you know, when you compare to the field of view of a typical telescope, um, they it, it could have included Beetlejuice. If people were thinking, oh, is, is this maybe a gravitational wave from Beetlejuice? Uh, there was there was people speculating that, and you know, obviously it's that's that's a that's a very tenuous link, but I think that's where some of the excitement came <laughs> from as well. I mean, that would be really cool. But, yeah. But they sort of know what black hole signatures look like in LIGO, so I guess well, wouldn't it wouldn't it be something that yeah, wouldn't it look something different? Wouldn't it not be a a black hole trigger if it was in fact Beetlejuice. As, as far as I'm aware, they it's triggered the pipeline that looks for intermediate mass black holes, but they've mm-hmm. not kind of classified it officially yet. Okay. So they've they've seen the signal. Apparently, it's a signal um, the with a false alarm rate of um, one out of every 25 years, um, oh, which, is a, know, which, yeah. which is apparently high, you know, high signal um, for for LIGO. Um, so there was a gravitational wave. Beetlejuice is getting dimmer. Some people have linked them together. We will have to wait and see. I think mm. I think it's a bit of a tenuous link, but people have made that link. On the other hand, there are actually a few pulsars that are interesting in that direction, the direction of that LIGO um, detection. And we know that pulsars and neutron stars are responsible for gravitational wave events. So at the moment, uh, telescopes like the Lovell Telescope uh, looking at those pulsars just to see if anything interesting happened to them around the time of that uh, gravitational wave event. Because if, if, for example, one of those pulsars glitched or did something a bit funky that we can now pick up on ne- at, after the fact, because um, I don't think we happened to be looking at the time, unfortunately, then maybe that can indicate that a gravitational wave event, not a merger or anything like that, but a smaller event could have occurred with, involving one of those pulsars in that area. <laughs> There's a lot of just wait and see for this. Yes, usually that's the case. And we're going to wait and see what Beetlejuice does as well. But the galaxy itself is long overdue for a supernova explosion, mm. um, statistically, which of course means that there is some scatter on that and there's mm-hmm. not really such thing as being overdue. But on the other hand, we really should have one soon. Mm-hmm. Although, again, that's soon on astronomical timescales, where I think about 10,000 years is usually the shortest time frame we tend mm-hmm. to work with. Well, but on the other hand, the last supernova explosion that we know that was recorded by Chinese astronomers and quite a few ancient astronomers was in 1054 AD, which was the Crab Nebula explosion. Mm -hmm. And we know that we expect to see one every, I'm going to say, less than a thousand years, because it's been about a thousand years since the last one. Mm -hmm. So I think it might be every 500 years or something. By looking at Milky Way-like galaxies and how often supernovas go off in those, we can bring that back to our own. So we are kind of waiting for the next one to happen mm-hmm. after the crab. And we do, and this Beetlejuice as well is an interesting thing to look back at ancient astronomers, um, and in particular verbal histories and stories from uh, indigenous people, because a lot of stories about space by indigenous uh, astronomers, we should call them astronomers, involves things like, you know, at this time we saw this particular star get fainter or a star in a particular constellation. So I'm not sure if anything 
particular to Betelgeuse has come up, but we, it is known that other stars have been seen to dim by, for example, Indigenous Australians and been incorporated in folklore and stories. Well, I don't know about particular stars dimming, but I did have a look into the history of Orion as a constellation just to see basically how far back it goes as a recognised thing. So Orion, the name is the name is Greek. It's Orion the Hunter. And there were actually a lot of different cultures which saw it as a humanoid figure and gave it the name of, well, some sort of legendary hunting figure. Uh, I think one of the earlier records we have is from Babylon, where it was called the Heavenly Shepherd. Uh, so that was the late Bronze Age, which was between about 1500 and 1200 BCE. So it's got a bit, quite a pedigree there. <laughs> uh, Muslim astronomers called it, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this, Al-Jabbar, the giant. The ancient uh, Egyptians associated it with one of their gods. There's a lot of things, like there's a lot of cultures saw it as some sort of hunter figure. But it turns out that Orion as, you know, a recognised humanoid figure is ancient, as in predating all written history. Uh, so the oldest currently known representation, which they're fairly certain is Orion, just based on the uh, the shape looking well, very much like the constellation, was a piece of carved mammoth ivory found in a cave in Germany dating between 32 and 38,000 years old. Wow. <laughs> so there is a good chance that somewhere someone has noticed that it got significantly fainter or something like that, if mm. this constellation has been such a significant part of history. So I'm curious to see what um, science historians come up with as far as searching for whether something like this has happened before with this particular star. Mm. And it will be, when it does go, although God knows it may well not be within any of our lifetimes, and effectively we're going to lose a constellation to a certain extent, which humanity has recognised for over 30,000 years. Yeah, in a way, I'm kind of, I, I, I do want it to go in my lifetime because that would be so cool. Um, but also, I, I, I feel sad. Like, Orion is definitely one of my favourite constellations, you know, when I start to see it, this, um, when it, when it's the time of year where it starts becoming visible again, I just kind of get all fuzzy and happy because, oh, Orion's back. I mean, it's such an excellent constellation. You can make it out nice and clear, even with the sort of level of light pollution we get in Manchester. It's one of those ones which is just nice and easy to spot. Well, in the Southern Hemisphere, it's upside down. <laughs> and uh, we call his belt the saucepan because it looks like a little saucepan. Um, but I guess it's one way to go out with a bang, right? Because you, it's mm. going to be so bright that you'll be able to see it in the daytime mm -hmm. because mm. that's what supernova explosions are, so mm. crazy bright that for a bit there we won't be able to miss it. Yeah, it's good. I think current predictions are putting it as it's probably got a good chance of being brighter than the moon for a couple of weeks and because of that it will be very likely visible in the daytime. And it's not quite going to be on the level of a second sun. It's not that dramatic, but it's still going to be very prominent. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about it being a potential supernova in our own Milky Way galaxy as well um, is that there, again, I didn't know this until I was uh, seeing the news about this recently, um, but we do have a supernova early warning system in place, um, which is 
it is it's, it, what it does is it, it looks for neutrinos like very high neutrino signals um because it's thought that if a supernova were to go off in our own galaxy um we would see a huge burst of neutrinos um going past the earth um before the light would reach us from the supernova because the neutrinos they are well neutrinos are little tiny particles and they just do not want to interact with matter at all they just speed through the universe um and you know, we, we can detect them if we have huge tanks of water, for example, as the, the Super Cameo Candy, I think. Um, yeah, the big neutron. Like yeah, that. We've, we've got lots of neutron detectors, but they basically require, I think, just a large amount of numbers to actually detect a neutrino. So anyway, they can escape from the star very, very quickly and go off on their way to potentially be an early warning system. Um, but the light actually, it might take a few hours for the first photons to be visible. Um, so actually the neutrinos would reach us before the light. So I would say if you are keeping your hopes up for a supernova explosion of Betelgeuse anytime soon, um, don't worry. We hopefully will know a few hours in advance so you can get your telescope set up to uh, watch the show. On the other hand, it is going to be so bright that a lot of our telescopes that we use won't be able to look at it. That is, that is also very true. So yeah. bright that it's just going to overexpose. Everything. I came across a really excellent uh, piece of information about how bright supernovae are from XKCD, actually. Uh, their wattest section. I love a bit of XKCD. Yeah. It's excellent. We yeah. should definitely put the link. In oh, the yeah. Show. We'll put the lo- link in the show notes for this. Because it was actually to do with neutrinos, like what you'd have to do to get a lethal dose of neutrino radiation was uh, actually the question being posed. And, they, and uh, the author pegged a supernova as being one of the pretty much the only scenarios where this could physically happen. But I guess you have to be standing right next to it. Well, pretty close, yeah. (laughs) But the example he gave for how bright supernova is, he sort of pointed out, however bright supernovae you think supernovae are, they're brighter than that. And the example he gave to illustrate this was, which is brighter, a supernova seen at the same distance the Earth is from the sun, or a hydrogen bomb detonating pressed into your eyeball. Sounds painful. <laughs> it does. And the answer is the supernova by nine orders of magnitude. Ah, uh, uh, what? <laughs> uh, for those who are not into their scientific notation, that is one billion times brighter than a hydrogen bomb pressed against your eyeball. Hmm. Of course, Beetlejuice is far away enough. It's not going to be yeah, quite no, that We don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> but they are, they are really incredible incredible <laughs> phenomena. Awesome. Well, from one classic constellation to a classic TV show. Oh, yes. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, My Odd and End um, does contain slight spoilers um, for a couple of recent episodes of Doctor Who, specifically the uh, first couple of episodes of Series 12. Um, so if you haven't watched those yet and you're planning on it, maybe skip the next. Well, maybe we'll put in the show notes exactly yes. what times you should skip from and to if we you should. want to avoid the spoilers. Yes, I've only watched the first episode, Emma. I'm going to leave oh, the no. room. <laughs> Have you actually watched the first episode? Yeah, yeah, because I was I was traveling oh, when it started, so I haven't really had a time. Oh to no, maybe, maybe it's too soon to be talking about this. This is what I wanted to do for my old man. Well. Okay, I will, I will, I I tell you what, for the sake of Laura as well, I will keep it very vague. So in the second episode, um, there is a reference to, um, Dodgeball Bank, um, and it's specifically a reference to, um, the 
well, actually reasonably well-known uh, within Doctor Who circles, uh, Regeneration of Tom Baker, the fourth Doctor. Um, so in this story, um, it's um, part of series, sorry, season um, 18. Yeah, they've got seasons though. Yeah, so that th- this is things so, that yeah, the old classic Doctor Who is usually referred to by seasons, and then the new Doctor Who is typically referred to by series. Um, I know that then there's different people call se- season series differently between British and uh, American. It's all just a bit complicated. It's all the, the new stuff. Exactly, new stuff. exactly. If I was going to look it up on Wikipedia, though, it would be season. It would be yeah. So season eighteen. Um, uh, Logopolis is the story, and in which basically the, the Doctor falls from the Lovell Telescope. Except it's not the Lovell Telescope. Um, and here's where we're getting into a kind of a little bit of behind-the-scenes Doctor Who history here. Um, if you're not already familiar with this this link Doctor Who has to Dodrell Bank, so originally they did want to film at Dodrell Bank. So the Doctor goes to Logopolis, um, which is a planet inhabited by mathematicians uh, who create and control objects and space-time using the pure mathematical process of block transfer computation. Ooh. Wow. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I, w- I was a bit baffled when I watched the episode, but, you know, I love Doctor Who, so we'll, we'll just go with it. And um, they're also apparently responsible for preventing the collapse of the very universe that we live in. So, you know, pretty important stuff that they they do here. And so they, on on Logopolis, they have the Lovell Telescope. Well, a copy of the Lovell Telescope. And the idea is that it's a copy of a dish that is on Earth at somewhere called the Pharos Project. Um, So what these alien scientists have done is they've made a copy of Jodrell Bank, but it's not Jodrell Bank. It's actually the Faros project, and they never actually ended up filming at Jodrell Bank um, because of budget constraints. So they filmed elsewhere, made a model of the Lovell Telescope, but in spirit, it is Jodrell Bank. And I think for many years, we have claimed, oh yes, Tom Baker fell off the, uh, the, the, the Lovell Telescope and he regenerated. So that was our, our little link to Doctor Who there. Um, except, yeah, we, it was a bit of a tenuous claim because, as I said, it was never <laughs> explicitly said to be Jodrell Bank. Uh, except in the, the new series, which again I will not go into much detail of um, for spoilery reasons, um, that does get referenced, but it gets referenced as Jodrell Bank and not the Faris Project. Ooh, um, so there was actually a bit of speculation online after the episode, and it was like, is, is this an inconsistency? Um, should they have said, you know, referred to the Faris Project rather than Jodrell Bank? And I guess the way that you can reconcile the two is that the Faros project was based at Jodrell Bank all along. It's not uncommon for projects to have different names and then be based at different physical locations. And we can ignore the fact because it wasn't actually filmed at Jodrell. None of the buildings look like our Jodrell control buildings. But we can kind of mesh these things together and still reconcile our Doctor Who and Jodrell joint history. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly enough, there is a project at Jodrell now called the Faros Project. Oh, um, <laughs> How did they know that? And Pharos is, uh, there's actually a Pharos meeting in Greece in, I'm going to say April this year. Pharos is a pulsar related. Yes, yeah. So I just, was that also named after Doctor Who? I mean, that would be cool. I I have no (laughs) idea. I don't know. Uh, Well, the the one that I'm thinking of is, um, um, so there's a a project called um, Phased Phased Arrays for Reflector Observing Systems. So Pharos developed for the Lovell Telescope at Jodrell Bank Observatory. Um, just a bit, some, some basically an, an electronics project to um, improve the telescope. 
who wants to bet that whoever came up with the name deliberately chose it so they'd actually have a Faris project at Jodrell? I, I think there is a very, very strong likelihood that that is the case. I mean, as astronomers <laughs> and our acronyms, we do go a bit crazy with them, mm-hmm. don't we? If we get the chance to make, you know, a nice Doctor Who reference while we're at it, then, oh, we're definitely going for it. Exactly. And one thing as well I want to mention before we move on is that, although I've stressed the fact that originally there was never any filming happening at Trottle Bank for Doctor Who, and even though a model was made of the Lovell Telescope, and actually one thing that's reflected in the original broadcast is how the Lovell Telescope looked then, um, and actually there's some kind of discrepancies between exactly at what period of time this model that was featured in Doctor Who was based on, but they did actually last year, well, no, not last year anymore, oh, oh, it's 2020 now. Time is passing, it's terrible. What I can say is last year um, they did release a a Blu-ray of that season of Doctor Who, um, which included this episode, um, which had been filmed the year before that. So I'm still saying last year the DVD came out, the, the, the Blu-ray came out last year, um, and actually in it they they went back to Dro- they went well they went to Drogdal for the first time and using they filmed some new drone footage um, and they've updated the special effects of this episode of Doctor Who um, and in that you can see the Lovell Telescope as it as it currently looks like. Well, I I, oh, I got all excited about it. I was like, oh, look at how it looks awesome. now, yeah. <laughs> um, and on, on, on the Blu-ray, you can toggle between the updated special effects and the original special effects. Ooh, and, um, yeah, one, oh, just old classic Doctor Who special effects. They really <laughs> they really are a gem. <laughs> They're absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And I will say as well, Jodrell Bank has been um, mentioned in, um, in Doctor Who a few other times as well. Um, it run right back um, to the episode The Tenth Planet, which um, was right back with the, the first Doctor, and they detected the return of Mondas to the solar system. Um, Mondas being where the Cybermen came from. Um, if you're the familiar with Cybermen. Your, exactly, yes. Uh, if you're familiar with uh, that, well, this is Doctor Who lore. And just kind of throughout the show as well, there's there been a few references to Jodrell Bank either detecting or maybe missing and not detecting various alien ships. But Jodrell Bank seems to be the go-to observatory in the UK uh, for the Doctor to call on in his time of need when he needs to look for aliens. Or she, sorry, I should say. Yes, um, <laughs> I was going to say, yes, no, I oh, I love Jodie Whittaker's Doctor so much. <laughs> Great. Um... <laughs> Anyway, um, so yeah, I just wanted to geek out for a bit about Doctor Who. Also, I'm very impressed that you did actually manage to bring aliens into it again, effectively. Okay, I I was joking the first time. I'm not usually, I'm not usually a file. Obviously, we all know that Doctor Who is fictional, um, as much as I would like it to be otherwise. It's not a documentary. Yes, so um, I, I'm actually impressed that I managed to do that without being too spoilery. But when, <laughs> yes. you, wa- when you watch the episode, Laura, you can look forward to uh, a Doctor I will. Thing. I already look forward to it. Good. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doctor Who has actual aliens, and this is something that isn't aliens. Okay, everybody, fast radio birth, not aliens. <laughs> <laughs> but still really, really cool. So I'm going to talk about a, a really recent result uh, regarding fast radio birth. So... I've talked about Fast Radio Birth, I think, pretty much every time I've been on the podcast. <laughs> it's kind of using. It is, yes. Uh, all pulsars. So just as a little bit of a recap, a Fast Radio Birth is a really short, really bright flash of radio light, um, usually lasting sort of milliseconds, so a few milliseconds to tens of milliseconds, so way less than a second. 
And we know from some properties that these bursts have that they come from outside of our galaxy, and we can usually get a bit of a rough estimate about how far outside of our galaxy they are. But usually because these things happen just once, and then they're gone, unless you're really, really lucky, you don't know exactly where they're coming from. Because the telescopes that we use, like the Lovell, are usually single-dish telescopes, which means that they don't really have any resolution. You just have an idea about the size of the moon, where these things are coming from. But inside the size of the moon, if you put the moon at any point in the sky, there's hundreds, if not thousands of galaxies. So if we just see a flash coming from sort of over there, we can get an okay idea, maybe narrow it down to a couple of hundred galaxies that usually not do that well. However, in this case, we've got a fast radio burst that's repeating. Uh, if you remember from probably multiple Jodcasts, the first repeater, which we now call R1, it used to just be called the repeater because it was the only one, that's no longer the case. The first repeater R1 was localized to a dwarf galaxy, an old dwarf galaxy, um, metal poor, pretty much just an old galaxy. By, by metal poor, are you using the, the, the general description of metals or the astronomer description the of metals? The astronomer description of metals, which is anything except hydrogen, helium, and sometimes carbon, depending on which astronomer you ask. But mostly hydrogen and helium. Yeah, so anything that's, it's got lots of hydrogen and helium, but not much else. Um, but also that fast radio burst R1 was localized to a star forming region in that small galaxy very far away. Now, since then, two fast radio bursts have been localized, and those two were just the single ones, the ones that just bang and they're gone, not repeaters as far as we can tell. Now, this one, the most recent one, so this paper came out less than a week ago, actually, is a repeating one again. But the interesting thing about this one that's really significant is that it's been localized to a galaxy that's very like the Milky Way. So it's a galaxy that's actually a spiral galaxy. This is the first, so now this is four FRBs that have been localized, and this is the only one that's been localized to a spiral galaxy. The rest of them have been elliptical or just kind of irregular dwarf galaxies. Um, a little bit more detail on that. So this is really, really important for FRB science because, first of all, it's another localization. Four is still maybe not enough to do a huge amount of statistics, <laughs> um, but if we kept finding these things in dwarf galaxies, then that would tell us something about where they're from and what they're made from. Because dwarf galaxies, for example, don't have a huge amount of star formation or the type of star formation um, means that there's a certain amount of explosions that happen or that there's a certain amount of magnetars. So the type of galaxy that we find these things in could tell us a lot about what they are. So if we kept finding them in ellipticals, then that would tell us one thing, but all of a sudden we have a spiral that sort of goes, oh, maybe it's not all of those things that we thought it was. So it's really exciting. Um, I should say who found this and all that sort of stuff. So uh, it's the CHIME FRB collaboration. So CHIME is the Canadian H1 mapping experiment. And it's this really cool telescope in Canada. I nearly said Canada. That would have been awkward. <laughs> in Canada. Um, and it looks like, I think, four half pipes. So it's this cylindrical telescope that looks like four half pipes next to each other. Like kind of like a corrugated roof. Yeah, yeah, sort of like that. So it's, it's pretty big and it's really cool in that it sees all of the sky every day. So uh, as far as FRB detection and pulsars, it's really an amazing telescope because 
it's looking all the time. And that's what we need to find things when we don't know where they're coming from and they could happen at any time is that you need to be looking all the time. So China has published quite a few fast radio bursts. I suspect there are many, many more than they've published um, because it takes time to publish these things, so they're keeping it hush hush. I think, I think, I think they they're allowed to st- allowed to say I'm putting this in quotation marks, but that doesn't really translate very well over audio. Um, <laughs> they have found hundreds of FRBs in total. Yes, that's um, right. But yes, uh, what's been seen and what's been published. I mean, you, I guess you know the politics of this better than anyone. Yeah, it's a bit. I, I, yeah, eventually most of the, these telescopes, including us at Meerkat and Meerkat, will have to publish them straight away, and also it'll just become so many that it doesn't make sense to keep them quiet. But until that point, so basically telescopes like Time will be waiting until they have enough to do a lot of interesting statistics and come out with a cool result, which is completely reasonable because they've done a load of hard work, so they deserve the, the kudos for all that hard work that they've done. But we, the rest of us, not in the time collaboration, are waiting with bated breath to see what they come up with um, when they publish them. So the time collaboration were the ones who detected this fast radio burst the first time, and then once they found it, they had a look with the very long baseline interferometer. They used the European VLBI network, so that's the European Very Long Baseline Interferometry Network, um, with eight radio telescopes. So basically what that means is when we... Do radio astronomy, you can have a single dish, or you can use lots of dishes and add them together and effectively make a uh, model or digital telescope that's got the, the diameter of the longest distance between the two antennas that you use. So VLBI is uh, exciting and interesting in that it uses telescopes that can be really, really far apart, like on opposite sides of the world, different hemispheres. And in some cases, that can be very, very helpful if they're quite that far apart because uh, essentially the further apart the telescopes are, the smaller the detail they can resolve, assuming there's enough of them. Yes, exactly. So in this case, they get milli-arc second resolution. So a degree on the sky is about two moons next to each other. And then divide that by 60, and you get an arc minute. Divide that by 60, you get an arc second. Divide that by 1,000, and you get a milli-arc second. So we're getting quite impressively small. Yes, so VLBI is known for their absolutely amazing resolution. Um, It's often used for things like pinpointing the exact position of a pulsar, um, resolving jets of AGN, lots and lots of really cool things. But it's hard to do because, first of all, you have to use all these telescopes that can be quite different and try and put their signals together, and that's really hard. Also, you have to be able to get time on all of these telescopes at the same time, which is also really, really hard. Um, But I'm not sure exactly which telescopes were involved in this one, but uh, the Lovell is often involved in the LBI experiments, um, and Effelsberg, Green Bank... Parkes Radio Telescope. So this is sort of like if you remember the uh, the Event Horizon Telescope is also an example of a very long baseline interferometer. And that's, that's basically pushing the limit of what you can do with it as well because yeah. their, their baselines are pretty much the size of the Earth, so that's just the, the largest distance that you can get. Um, unless you go out into space, which there has been a radio satellite out in space before. Um, sadly, I don't think it's operational anymore, but I can I can be corrected on that. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, there might be one, but I don't think it's 
there's the, I know there was RadioNet. Radio Astron. Uh, yeah, Radio Astron. Sector R, I think. Not RadioNet, Radio Astron, maybe. Radio Astron. There was, yeah. there was, a, there was a Russian satellite in space. Anyway, for, other than that, it's uh, yeah, the longest baseline you can go. Yeah. And also, the, um, the smaller the wavelength or higher frequency waves that you can observe, um, also the better resolution you get as well. And I think they basically but the pushed harder it. it is. Yeah, they, they basically pushed it up until they, they were at the highest frequency they could go uh, without it becoming too difficult. So yeah. that's, that's pretty much the limit of it, right? So you can do interferometry on millimeter mm. wavelengths now, but they've gone up to millimeter wavelengths, um, which is a couple of hundred gigahertz, I guess. No, I don't know. This, this is this, the, the, the amount of times that I do uh, these kind of calculations, and I can still, I still can't do them in my head, and I still just can't. No, just, just, a, just a little, little division, speed of light, and just, just never do it. Let's say here it was 1.7 gigahertz, so that's a bit above L band um, for those of you who are radio astronomy aficionados. Okay, so what did they do? Basically, they detected this fast radio burst with chime, and then looked at it with the LBI for about six hours, and they saw four bursts from it in that time, which is really good because that means if you see it go flash, you can say it was there. So they saw these four bursts. Really interestingly, they have some cool structure going on in the actual burst itself, um, which is actually similar to the first repeater, which has some weird structure too. When when you say structure in the signal, like yes. kind of what, what does that look like? I realise that, that a podcast is maybe not the best medium to ask this to be described over, but... Well, I guess you could sort of think of it as um, an FRB is like one flash, but in this case it's sort of a flash and then it goes sort of half off and then turns back on again really bright. So it's sort of a modulation in the brightness. So it's really bright and then it gets a little bit fainter and then brighter again, or maybe it's really bright, goes away completely and then has another little bright bump afterwards. So it's sort of a how bright it is in that and this is still on teeny teeny tiny time scale so it might be really really bright for in this case it looks like much less than a millisecond and then goes faint again and then less much less than a millisecond later it's bright again so these telescopes are amazing and how short the time they can actually see something going on so they had a look they saw this flash they looked where it was um and localized it to that spot and interestingly in the radio there's nothing there apart from this flash so i think the repeater there is something there in the radio a faint persistent so a faint radio source that's always there for at least one of the other single flashes that they've localized there's also nothing there as far as we can tell so just trying to when i say nothing there doesn't mean there's actually nothing there it's just nothing there that we can detect so it's so faint that we can't see it which is pretty faint when we're talking VLBI. So they, however, they also looked in other frequencies and the SDSS catalog, which is an amazing Northern Hemisphere All Sky Optical Survey, which also has spectroscopy. It's SDSS is the bomb. Oh yes. Uh, there's a galaxy there. So and and given a whole lot of statistics and maths and stuff, um, there's only a one percent chance that this FRB and the galaxy line up by coincidence. So there's a ninety-nine percent chance that the FRB came from that galaxy. So are you saying there's a 1% chance it's alien? <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely uh, how probability works. I, I, don't, I don't know what's got into me today, I'm sorry. <laughs> so there's a 1% chance that it's just happened that the FRB came from something in front of or behind that galaxy. But pretty much they're saying that as far as 
we can tell it's coming from that galaxy, which is really important because this chance coincidence stuff is a really important part of this localization because there's a lot of stuff in the sky, so there's always a chance that it's just by coincidence that they lined up. So after doing a bit of redshift stuff and spectroscopy, they found that this galaxy is about 150 megaparsecs away, and because we're all familiar with parsecs from uh, Star Wars. But just in case you'd like it in a bit more of a useful <laughs> um, unit, that's about 4.9 times 10 to the 8 light years, which is 490 million light years away from our galaxy, which is really far away. However, it's the closest localized fast radio burst, which is another important thing about this one because the closer it is, the more stuff we can see because our telescope, you know, you need a really big telescope the further away something gets, but this way we can see a lot about this galaxy um, with just the telescopes that we have now. Interestingly, that because they have such excellent milliarc-second localizations, they've localized this fast radio burst on top of a star-forming region in this spiral galaxy. So serendipitously, the spiral galaxy is what we call face-on. So a spiral galaxy is like a disk, and you can, if you look at it side-on, it just looks like a narrow strip. But if you look at it face-on, you can see the spiral in all of its lovely glory. And it's better if it's face-on, because then, in this case, it's better if it's face-on, because then we can see where in the galaxy this FRB is coming from. And in this case, it's from a star-forming region kind of at the edge of the galaxy. Um, and that's also really important and interesting, because star formation means star explosions, means new things happening. So it's kind of a a region of a galaxy where lots of things are happening and that's where you could get something kind of explodey. In this case, though, we know it's not an explosion because we've seen multiple bursts from the same source and you can't have something explode itself into oblivion and then explode again. That's just not how things work. So another interesting thing is that the magnetic environment, so by measuring something called the Faraday rotation measure, yes, <laughs> and it's like, yes, magnetic yes. field. Um, it has kind of a, a normal rotation measure, but this is three orders of magnitude lower than the first repeater. So that tells us something as well, that in particular, you don't need a crazy magnetic field to get a repeating fast radio burst. Because before we had one repeating fast radio burst with a crazy high rotation measure, with a crazy high magnetic field, but now we have a second one that's got kind of a lowish one, so we don't need that. That's important. So it's sort of a matter of just ruling out you know, okay, so it probably needs this and it probably needs that, but this is just coincidental. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it could be part of it, that's for sure, but it's not something that's a necessary condition for having one of these things. It doesn't rule out the main prevailing theory about what a repeating fast radio burst is, because the the main one, there are many, many theories. Well, I'm sure I've heard the phrase many times that at one point there was there were more theories about what FRBs were than detected FRBs. That was the case until Chime came onto the scene. Now that Chime's on the scene, that's not the case anymore. But it's, it's kind of close. Last time I checked, it was about 70 theories, but there's probably more since then because it's been a while since I checked. So let's say on the order of 100 theories about what these things could be. Um, so the prevailing theory and the theory that most of us kind of like the best, just from a, you know, we kind of, most of us are pulsar astronomers, so that's probably why, is that it's a magnetar in some sort of weird environment or it's a rapidly rotating magnetar. But it doesn't rule that out because the, repeater, the first repeater, which has the weird magnetic field, could just be a really young one. And then this one, 
with a less crazy magnetic field could be an older version of the same thing. So it's still totally reasonable for us to keep that theory in. But then where would non-repeating FRBs fit into that? So that now that the, the idea is that they're all repeating, so we haven't proven that, of course, and it's going to be difficult to prove that, but the idea is that they're all repeating except some of the bursts are so faint that we we can't detect them. But that doesn't mean they aren't there. The, the four bursts that were detected um, in, in the paper that you were talking about of, the, of this repeater, were they kind of spaced evenly apart? Is there any kind of, I realise four data points is really not very many at all, but is there any kind of periodicity information you can get from it? As far as been has been published, and as far as I know, I haven't heard any rumours about this in particular, there has been no periodicity detected for any repeating fast radio burst. So the repeater, the first repeater, has hundreds of bursts detected now, and we still haven't found any underlying periodicity. For that particular source, the rule kind of the rule of thumb is if you've seen a burst, you're more likely to see another one, and if you haven't seen one for a while, you're not likely to see one. But apart from that, with all the tests that we can do for pulsars and rotating radio transients and that sort of thing, we just don't know when the next one's going to happen because pulsars are beautiful in the fact that we can say very, very precisely when the next burst is going to happen. Even if we haven't seen it for a while, we'll still be able to say, we haven't looked at it for two years, but I can say the next one is going to be now unless something weird happens like a glitch. But in the case of repeating fast radio bursts, no idea. So they're, they're repeating but not on any kind of regular scale that we can count. Um, but, got my facts up, there's one particular fast radio burst that's a repeater where the repeat bursts are more than 600, uh, nearly, sorry, the repeat bursts are nearly 600 times fainter than the originally discovered burst. So that kind of gives you an idea about why we might not be detecting things as repeating because if we see one really bright burst and then the rest of them are 600 times fainter, that might push them lower than our detection limit. So we just can't see them. And obviously you've got no means to check if there's going to be another bright burst, so it'd just be a matter of looking in the same place and there coincidentally happens to be another one. Yes, exactly, and thousands of telescope hours have been spent looking back at the same sources just to see if they're going to um, go off again. But that's the beauty of time, again, because it's looking at the same, at the sky all of the sky every day, it doesn't need to spend extra hours following up sources because it sees them anyway. So it's going to find lots and lots of repeaters. It probably already has, but hasn't told us. I was going to say, this came out on Monday. Did you see it? Yes, I did. Okay. So so Emma's just shown uh, there's a new paper with nine new repeating fast radio burst sources from time. So I think there are 11 maybe now, something like that, more than 10 repeating fast radio bursts. Like, yeah, even me, completely not in this field at all, like sometimes you do hear, ooh, there's, there's, there's been another one, or ooh, there's, there's been there's this one, and it's sometimes hard to know what's been published and what hasn't and what you can talk about. So I assume yeah. that you are in this predicament <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, so, so most of the things we hear about, if it's just more, we kind of already know that there are more, so that's not particularly exciting, but they did manage to keep this particular result of localizing one to a, a spiral galaxy very hush-hush. So it's that sort of thing that they'll keep really quiet. And the other thing, you know, kind of quiet, but most of FLB astronomy knows about them. So I guess it's just a really exciting result for fast radio burst astronomy because it's 
it's cool and new, but it's also weird, and that kind of gives us extra puzzle pieces to what's happening with Fast Radioverse in general and, wh- and what they could be made of, and looking up counterparts and things like that. So this kind of localization is not real time. They saw it in one telescope, and then later on they were like, let's go and have a look at it. Um, but telescopes like ASCAP, Meerkat, um, Westerbork, those are sort of the 1.4 gigahertz telescopes, but even LOFAR and things like that, who have never detected an FRB yet, which tells us something about the science because LOFAR is very low frequency. Um, lots and lots of telescopes are now doing a real-time or very close to real-time localization. So that means repeaters will be localized, but also those one-offs will be localized, which is going to be a really important part of FRB science. This is just another piece to that, which is really exciting for us. And everybody, everyone be excited. <laughs> Not just FRB astronomers, everyone. <laughs> Another space explodey thing, like, what What more could you want? To, to be fair, I think, yeah, transient astronomers, you do get kind of the excitement factor yes. of these things that go bang in the night all day. Doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> One of the rare fields where something exploded is excellent news. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so... I, I think we're just waiting here the next time that I'm on the Judcast so I can have another FRB astronomy result because <laughs> they keep coming. Just quickly, <laughs> what do you think we will know? What, what do you think will happen first? Beetlejuice going supernova or us knowing what FRBs are? Oh, wow, that's actually a really... Mm, I, I, from my own bias standpoint, hopefully we'll know what FRBs are first. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to go with that. <laughs> You've only got 100,000 years. Yeah, exactly. I believe in my fellow fast radio best astronomers. We can do this. Go team. <laughs> and now, hopefully with a few less explosions, here's Ian with this month's night sky. The night sky for January 2020. Well, we have beautifully long nights if it's clear to observe the heavens. And due south we have this most wonderful skyscape. Orion is centre stage. The three stars in its belt point down to the left to the brightest star in the northern hemisphere, Sirius, in Canis Major. If you follow those three stars up to the right, you come into the constellation of Taurus the Bull, with the two lovely open clusters, the Hyades and the Pleiades. And they're a lovely thing to look at with binoculars or a small telescope. Now, setting over towards the west after sunset is the square of Pegasus. The top left-hand star is actually in Andromeda. It's Alpha Andromedae, or Alpha Rats. It gives you one of the ways to find one of the loveliest objects in the sky, the great nebula in Andromeda, M31. If you start at Alpha Rats, move one fairly bright star to the left, tilt round a little bit to the next bright star, they're going from delta to beta, in fact. And then turn 90 degrees sharp right. You'll see another fairly bright star. And beyond that, hopefully you'll see a fuzzy patch. It obviously helps a lot if there's no moon. I give a chart and directions how to find it on the Night Sky page. Just search for Night Sky Joggle and you'll find it. Another lovely object to look at lies between the constellations of Cassiopeia and it's actually just into the constellation of Perseus. It's called a double cluster and it's beautiful in a small telescope and with your eyes it just looks like a fuzzy blob but uh, with binoculars you may well see there are two little distinct patches, the two clusters forming the double cluster. 
down to the left of Perseus, you'll see, in fact, almost overhead at the moment, is the bright star Capella, Alpha Aurigae. And that is lying on the line of the Milky Way, which stretches up just to the left of Sirius and goes up to the left of Orion. And there's some very nice open clusters there, M37, M38, and also M36, which you can see with a small telescope. Coming further over towards the southeast, we have the constellation of Gemini, the heavenly twins, with their two bright stars, Castor and Pollux. And finally, as the evening draws on, you'll spot Leo the lion rising up from the eastern horizon with its bright star, Regulus. Looking to the north, we obviously have Polaris, the pole star close to the north celestial pole. The stars appear to rotate around Polaris. You can make some very nice um, star trails images. And that acts a bit like a clock, actually, of the year. And uh, in the evening, if you find Ursa Major over to the north-west, you know it's about the winter time. So let's have a look at the planets. Now, to be frank, there's not an awful lot to see, certainly until the end of the month. So let's have a look. Jupiter. Well, it passed behind the sun on December the 27th, 2019, of course, and will be lost in the sun's glare in the early part of January. But by the middle of the month, it will become visible shining at magnitude 1.9 in the pre-dawn sky. And by month's end, will rise about an hour before the sun. Now, you'll need a very low eastern horizon to see it. And, of course, our views of this giant planet and its Galilean moons will be hindered by the depth of the atmosphere through which you'll observe it. Now, Saturn, even worse, it passes directly behind the sun on the 13th of January, so couldn't be seen till the very, very end of the month. Then, equipped with binoculars and a very low eastern horizon, it might just be glimpsed at magnitude 0.6 in the pre-dawn sky, as it rises about 40 minutes before the sun. But, of course, please do not use binoculars after the sun has risen. So I'm afraid they're not really going to be that good this month, are they? Now, Mercury, we might just spot that. It passes in front of the Sun, that superior conjunction, by the way, on the 10th of January. So again, will not be visible until the very end of the month. Then, at magnitude minus one, it will set about 70 minutes after the Sun and will have an elevation low in the southwest of around nine degrees. Again, binoculars may well be needed to spot it, but please do not use them until after the sun has set. Well, we can see Mars fairly easily. It can be seen towards the southeast in the pre-dawn sky at the start of the month. It then rises some three hours before the sun, and we will be best seen at around 7am, having an elevation of 11 degrees. It will then have a magnitude of plus 1.6, and it's 4.3 arc second. should look something like a salmon pink colour. By month's end, it will be seen further round towards the south before dawn, and its magnitude will have increased slightly to plus 1.4. Now Venus is beginning to put on a good show. It rises rapidly in the twilight sky this month. As January begins, it could be best seen shining at magnitude minus 4 at about 5pm, having an elevation of 11 degrees above the southwestern horizon. As the month progresses, remaining at magnitude minus four, its elevation at sunset increases. And Venus will be best seen at the end of the month at about 6 p.m., having an elevation of about 22 degrees. Now, during the month, 
the angular size increases from 13 to 15 arc seconds, but at the same time its phase, that's the percentage of the disk illuminated, decreases from 82 to 74%. And that's why the brightness essentially remains constant throughout the month. Well, finally, what about some highlights? Well, in the evening, as I've mentioned, we have a chance to see the double cluster. And in Perseus, there's what's called the demon star Algol. And uh, this is a binary, occulting binary system. And normally the pair has a steady magnitude of plus 2.2. But every 2.86 days, it briefly drops to magnitude plus 3.4. And again, as I mentioned, on the night sky Jodrell Bank page, it shows you how to find the Andromeda galaxy. Now, around New Moon on the 24th of January, and away from towns and cities, so it's a pretty dark sight you need, you may also be able to spot M33. It's the third largest galaxy in our local group, after first M31, and secondly, our own galaxy. It's a face-on spiral, and the surface brightness is pretty low, so a really dark, transparent night will be needed, and you'll almost certainly need binoculars, either 8x40 or perhaps 10x50. You follow the two stars back from M31 that I mentioned, and continue in the same direction, sweeping slowly as you go. To me, it looks like a little bit of tissue paper stuck on the sky, just a bit brighter than the sky background. Well, on the 4th of January, before dawn, Mars lies above Antares in Scorpius. Mars at magnitude plus 1.5 will be seen just above the rather nice orange-coloured, really, giant, red giant star Antares. On the 7th of January in the evening, the Moon actually lies within the Hyades cluster. And that's easier to find. Obviously, the Moon is pretty bright. On the 10th of January, after sunset, Venus lies above the star Delta Capricornus. Shining, as I said, at magnitude minus four, it will lie above the third magnitude star, Delta Capricornus, also known as Deneb Algaidi. Quite not sure how to pronounce that. On the 27th of January, in the evening, you can see a very thin crescent moon lying between Venus up to the left and Mercury down to the right. But again, you're going to need a very low western horizon. I usually mention something on the moon, and in the night sky page, I mention two great lunar craters, which are Tycho and Copernicus. Tycho is near the bottom of the moon, in a densely cratered area called the Southern Lunar Highlands. It's a relatively young crater, about 108 million years old. It is interesting in that it is thought to be informed by the impact of one of the remnants of an asteroid that gave rise to the asteroid Baptisina. Another asteroid originating from the same breakup may well have caused the Chicxulub crater some 65 million years ago, and we all know what that helped to do. It has a diameter of 85 kilometers and is nearly 5 kilometers deep. At full moon, as seen in the image I provide, the rays of material that were ejected when it was formed can be seen arcing across the surface. In contrast, Copernicus is about 800 million years old and lies in the eastern Oceanus Procellarum, beyond the end of the Apennine Mountains. 
It's 93 kilometers wide and nearly 4 kilometers deep and is a classic terraced crater. And both can be seen with binoculars. So I do hope we have some clear nights. We haven't had too many in the last few months and you have a good view of the heavens. Good hunting. Thanks for that, Ian. And for us Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haratina Mogasanu and Samuel Lesky with the night sky where you are. Star Safari. Star Safari. Star Safari. Star Safari. Deep Sky Adventures. Deep Sky. Deep Sky Adventures. Star Safari. Welcome to a new decade of astronomy, discovery and fun. I'm Haritina Mogoshanu. And I'm Samuel Iski. And together we are Milky Way Kiwis. That is two Kiwis inhabitants of New Zealand who are crazy about the night sky. This month we look up into the night sky of January and February. We are actually at Stonehenge Aotearoa. In the middle of the night, it's just uh, coming up to midnight. And what we are looking at to the south is the Southern Cross with actually Omega Centauri almost about to appear behind a tree. And then we can follow the Milky Way up past the Diamond Cross, the False Cross, Canis, Majoris, Orion. Then we've got Taurus, then we've got Pleiades, or Matariki as we call it here, Aries, and yeah, that's the end of the Milky Way really, isn't it? Star Safari. What we can see right now is the spiral arm of our galaxy. We actually live in the Orion Spur, and every time we look towards Orion, we're looking towards the edge of the galaxy, and every time we look towards Scorpius, which now is like well beyond the horizon, we're looking towards the center of our galaxy. This time of the year is when we see very bright stars, not as many clusters and, and objects that are at the center of the galaxy, but still the Carina, Vela, and Crooks region here in the southern sky. This is this is always all these with goalies, and then you have the Magellanic clouds, and they're absolutely beautiful, especially on a on a dark sky like this one here in Wairarapa. Stonehenge Aotearoa here is located in Wairarapa, one of the darkest places in New Zealand. We thought this time we're going to make something different and record on location. So what we've got with us is our giant 16-inch telescope. Sheep. Oh, and some sheep. So actually you might hear the odd barring of sheep. But anyway, we've got our giant 16-inch telescope and we've been galaxy hunting. And actually the fields for galaxies hunting are pretty amazing at the moment. And in Groose, of course, we've got the uh, Groose Quartet with four really bright galaxies. We've got in, uh, in Cetus, 
uh, there's Cetus A, and there's what we find about five galaxies around that one, and then of course up in Fornax. So if you follow the uh, you know the the great uh, Eridanus uh, long road around the sky, so Eridanus goes all the way from Rigel, and here in New Zealand goes right up above at Zenith, and then all the way to Akenar. So Akinar actually means the end of the river Eridanus. And it's right at Zenith right now, and we're looking at it. Anyway, up there is this massive cluster of galaxies. How many do we count? We counted, well, I counted about 10, I think. You counted, and I counted like five. <laughs> <laughs> it was just galaxy after galaxy after galaxy. It was crazy, but uh, that, was, that was amazing. Um, in fact, in the eyepiece, at one point in the eyepiece, there were six galaxies. They're really cool because they're four stars that look like a very... Squashed. Parallelogram. Parallelogram, thank you. And then to the left of those parallelogram looking like stars is a tiny little triangle. And that's where you see those galaxies that we were talking about. So we decided to put our um, O3 filter on our... Our new O3 filter. Yeah, that we bought last... Uh, after we actually borrowed a friend's one last weekend. Ian Cooper. We had a great look at Eta Carina uh, Nebula with the O3 filter, and it really stood out. It was amazing. And we also used the O3 filter to have a look at uh, Tarantula Nebula, didn't we? That was amazing. I've never seen Tarantula like that, ever. And we just sort of browse the whole large Magellanic cloud, and you see just nebula after nebula but, after nebula. Let's just talk about tarantula, because it, it was huge. It was all of it was in the eyepiece of the 16-inch with this filter on, and you can see so much. It looked like a whole nest of spiders, not just one spider. Tarantula nebula is in the large Magellanic cloud. So now we're going to do some live stargazing. I'm going to move the large Leviathan of a telescope, not like the real Leviathan, but still it's pretty big, um, to have a look at 47.2. 47.2-Kane is a globular cluster that is one of the two very famous globular clusters here in the Southern Hemisphere. There is a competition. We talked about this competition many times. Um, I like 47 Tucane. Other people like Omega Centauri. 47 Tucane rocks. So now we'll have a listen to what Harry says when she sees 47 Tuc in the eyepiece. Wow. This is amazing. So I can see 47 Tucane right in the center. And it just is beautiful. And you can see the nucleus of this globular cluster that is really, really well defined in this telescope. And then almost like three rays, like it's almost like Tycho Crater on the moon. And at the edge of these um, uh, rays, there are like three stars that are like in a, in a triangle. And, and 47 Tucane is the center of this triangle, which is phenomenal. What do you see? Wow, like an awful lot of stars. <laughs> it's stunning. You can resolve the stars. Well, actually, well, to the centre, you can actually resolve stars in the core. It's, well, you know, what you can see. And it, and it almost looks three-dimensional. It is a massive cluster and really, really beautiful. What we'll do now is have a look at Sculptor Galaxy. I love Sculptor. It's so beautiful. And I have never seen the four stars that are actually in the galaxy, but with this big telescope, with the 16-inch telescope, you can actually see that. Star Safari. Star Safari. Star Safari. 
So Sam is now adjusting. He's really, really fast at finding galaxies. He's like the most uh, fast person I've ever seen in Maybe finding galaxies. So, you know, it's you can actually sort of see a little bit of detail in the in the galaxy itself, but it, it spans the whole life. It's, it's quite amazing. And I'm looking at it, and it is stretching through another triangle. This triangle is very, very pointy. So there are two stars that are at the bottom that make actually a tiny little triangle. There's three stars in a almost equilateral triangle at the bottom of the eyepiece here. And then there's this giant sculpture that is so big, and it just stretches all the way up to another star that makes a very pointy triangle with the other two stars. And through the middle of sculpture are four stars another parallelogram so why don't we try and find m1 m1 yeah why not i would never have thought about that m1 is here in taurus and right now taurus is really really high we can see the pleiades and we can see the hyades we can even see Aries on uh, on the northern horizon. In New Zealand, the stars of the zodiacal constellations go through the northern part of the sky, and they move in the sky counterclockwise, which is uh, completely the other way around, like in Europe. And we can see, obviously, Orion that is really high in the sky. And from Orion, here goes the galactic arm that stretches all the way through to the Southern Cross. And you can see the flounder. Maori call it the flounder, and we call it the Cossack in Europe. And you can actually see it. That's how dark the sky it is right now as we speak. And the two Magellanic clouds, obviously, that are just like just jumping out of the Milky Way and Canopus out there, one of my favorite stars. It's actually my favorite star um, right now. And here it is. Canopus is almost zenith. Like, it's so cool. And there is Sidious and there is Canopus and there there is yep. the large Magellanic Cloud and then there is the small Magellanic Cloud. So you've got this line of, of things that bright as the second brightest star in the sky and they are pointing to the large and the small Magellanic Clouds. They're almost in a line of for these four objects. It's just phenomenal sky here in New Zealand. It's the most beautiful sky I have um, I have ever seen. And so now Sam is going to show us the one and only M1, the Crab Nebula. M1 was absolutely gorgeous and it was like a fluff of things, wasn't it? Yeah. When we looked at it. So So we and, and we just looked just before at M forty two that looked absolutely amazing. You could see the four stars of the trapezium and now we're looking at M seventy eight and what do we see? Well, M78, of course, it's the, almost the forgotten cousin, really, because everybody focuses on M42. But there it is, M78. You can see the ref lovely reflection nebula being lit up by those bright stars at the centre. Wow. In fact, I've got a photo I took of M78, which I have on my phone. You should put it on online. It looks gorgeous. Yeah. Have you ever seen M78 before? I've never seen M78 before. And you can see, you can see that dark dust lane in it, you know, that's like on the photo. 
Yeah. Yeah. Stands out quite well. It is beautiful. So let's look at Etacarina. All right, let's round this one. Just, just because Etacarina is so beautiful too. Like everything is so beautiful. Tonight was like this. Wow. All right, there is the beautiful Etacarina Nebula. I mean, the dust lanes going through that nebula are just so spectacular, and it's like really, really crisp boundary between the nebula and the dust lanes. Um, you have a look, Harry, see what you see. What do I see? Oh, wow, it's a sea of stars, and it looks like lace, and you can see so many of them. And Etacarina, the star, which is kind of hard to see with the naked eye, but now is so obvious right there at the center of all this, whatever it is, I can see a really dark line of of dust coming through it. It's, it's just absolutely fabulous. If you have never seen Etacarina with a telescope, come to New Zealand. And see it with us. <laughs> because we can find it fast. Star Safari. Star Safari. Star Safari. Star Safari. All right, let's look at the Wishing Well cluster, which is this massive, big collection of stars that just fills the eyepiece. It's just beautiful. And you see those stars are almost, almost equidistant from each other. It's just the whole field, whole field of stars in, in the eyepiece here. And one is like really, really bright. It almost looks like a Christmas tree. It's like a, like a snowflake. <laughs> a weird sort of snowflake. Wow. All right, let's look for Jim. These are all beautiful clusters right here in this part of the sky that is in between the Southern Cross and the False Cross. And some just earlier, he saw um, Fireball. Oh, yeah. I, I was inside getting the hot tea and the marshmallows. Oh, yeah, could do for more, actually. <laughs> what did you do? This is just beautiful. Again, it's at the center of the image, so it's quite small. And I can see one red giant star. Everything else is like white, blue, whitish. But one of them is kind of like, if you look, about 7 o'clock. And it's just red. The sky is full of wonders tonight. And we were actually really lucky because it is very, very clear. So now now it's kind of like after midnight, but the sky that you, we see right now after midnight in January, we will be able to see it around 11 o'clock. And then on the 15th of January, um, we're going to be able to see it around 10 o'clock. And at the end of the month, we're going to be able to see it around 9 o'clock. So everything we look at right now 
uh, at midnight. We're here with the night owls, with the Mopworks. I don't know if you can hear any. There are like a few around us. Star Safari. Star Safari. Star Safari. Star Safari. We're just looking at this globular cluster. Is another no, sorry. It's it's an open cluster of stars, and it's near a very bright star. And then now someone from the audience will be like, Ian Cooper will call us, and he will tell us exactly what we're looking at. Ian Cooper is one of the most amazing astrophotographers of New Zealand. And last week we were here, and Sam was showing him pictures, and Ian could tell every single picture what it was and where it was, and we had the best night ever observing with him. NGC two five four six. NGC two five four six. Where? Um, in the Milky Way. Where in the Milky Way? Hang on. It's very close to Zenit. Just the light out of the false crop. So there's an Omicron Valorum. Uh, there's uh, Suhal Al Mulif. Oh yeah, that one. A little bit to the left of it. And there it is. And I have my bottle of tea, hot tea, which is in one of those uh, uh, glass bottles that I'm holding very dear um, that is heating me up because it's going to be very cold tonight. Well, actually, it is very cold already. Um, although here in New Zealand, we're almost heading towards the middle of the summer. doesn't really feel like summer. Let's do a grand finale. What are we going to look at for the grand finale? Let's look at the jewel box. No? Uh, let's see if we can see those um, really hard to see um, globular clusters in Mosca. Hmm. Something new. Mosca the fly is um, at 2 o'clock to the Saturn Cross. It does look like a fly. I can see Omega Centauri with my naked eye from here. Thanks. It is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, everything in this country is absolutely gorgeous if you look up and down, both up and down. Okay. Tell us what you see. A globular cluster with a star in it. It looks pretty cool. And so in the Moscow, which is just off, um, just off the Southern Cross, NGC 4833. Is a, is a lovely copy of the cluster. It's a magnitude 6.9. Um, I can I can certainly see plenty of stars. I can resolve stars right to the centre. In fact, in the eyepiece you can see it. So it's quite a um, it's quite a, a lovely cluster. There's a nice bright star, kind of not in the middle of it, but to one side. Now the next one I'm going to have a look at is a bit trickier. Let me see too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let me see. Oh, this is really tiny. And it's got the tiniest little star on the side. Yeah, it looks cool, the little star. So cute. It's a very cute globular cluster. Very, very small. I might keep talking about it because in the meantime, Sam is looking for the next one. And I can see stars around it that are grouped together, like a lot of open clusters around here. But this is just so cute. It almost looks a little bit like 47 Tucana, but like a tiny little version of it. Right, the next one is a little bit higher. What are we looking for? Another globular cluster. Oh, yeah, I can see it. 
Well, worth a satellite going through it. So here we go, another globular cluster. And it's not quite as bright as the other one. I think this one's a magnitude. Um, oh, what is it? Uh, 7.2. So this is NGC 3472. Deep Sky Adventures. Deep Sky. Deep Sky Adventures. Star, Star Safari. Safari. NGC 3472. Uh, it's quite big, and you, you know you can see kind of the you know the, the diffuse sort of cloud-like smudgy pattern. But um, overlaid on top of that is a whole bunch of stars that you can actually resolve. So it's quite a cool um, uh, globular cluster. This is tiny. It's like so tiny. It's very faint. It's not a star. I mean, it is big, but it's like really faint compared to in brightness compared to everything else we've been looking at. Yeah. There's another galaxy near our sculptor on the head which is quite close to the star Venus um, Kuiper. So we're looking at another galaxy near a sculptor close to the star Denokaitos. Oh, there it is. So this one's a, you know, it's not a very bright galaxy. Uh, it's sort of elongated, it's pretty faint. There is a sort of a brightening in the centre, which will be the core. There's a couple of foreground stars in front of it, which are quite bright. Have a look at that. This is so faint. If I thought that globular cluster was faint, this is like the mother of faintness. But I can see it, and I can see the stars that surround it, and I have to use my averted vision a lot, but I can see it, and it's absolutely beautiful. It's just so cool to be here under the sky and do this. No, yeah. And actually a globular cluster I want to show you maybe too. Um, what's this one here? So that was NGC 247, which is a 9.1 spiral galaxy. Um, that's a lovely little galaxy. So what we're going to do is look for another um, globular cluster. This one's NGC um, 288, which is an 8 point, magnitude 8.1 globular cluster. It's just a little bit beyond Sculptor Galaxy. Grustau is closing on to the horizon and it's about probably 10 degrees above the horizon going down straight. I love Grust because it has all these double stars. So when you look at it, it's like a necklace. Right, I am looking at the globular cluster and it is a globular cluster. 288. Globular cluster 288. So it is very tiny. Most. And well, it is, but it's very faint. Yeah. Um, and I can see surrounding it like a ring of stars and another satellite. Yes, I saw the satellite too. So there is a ring of stars surrounding this one. It's just so pretty. I don't think I've seen a globular cluster surrounded by uh, uh, it's almost like you know Corona Borealis. When you look at it, it's like a crown of stars. This is the telescope version. Yeah, it's very cool. So, tonight we have seen 
beautiful things in the sky. It was amazing. We had people here and we could share this amazing New Zealand night sky. It's just been a wonderful night. Um, you know, you can see the Milky Way is just, just standing out so bright, the large and the small Magellanic clouds. The Southern Cross, you've got Omega Centauri starting to come up. Gross is starting to, you know, descend down the horizon. Uh, we've probably lost the Helix Nebula now. Um, yeah, it's just been a really great night, really cool. We had a great bunch of people come out for our viewing session tonight, having about 19 people, um, all enjoying and seeing things they haven't seen before, more galaxies than you could poke a stick at. It was a really great night. Star Safari. Star Safari. Star Safari. Star Safari. Deep Sky Adventures. Deep Sky. Deep Sky Adventures. Star Safari. We would like to express our gratitude to our host, Stonehenge Aotearoa, for letting us plant our telescopes in their field. And to the amazing Rian Sheehan, whose stellar music always inspires us. From New Zealand and Wairarapa, Harry and Sam, we wish you clear skies so you can always see the stars. And always remember that we are made from the same stardust as they are. So hopefully those of you who aren't covered in smoke, sorry. Um, you got to see some of those things in the southern night sky. So thanks for that, Harry, Tina, and Sam. And now on to the feedback. Okay, so we have an email from John Murrell uh, that's talking about scale models of the solar system. So I think that was in a previous episode. I believe it was. So John tells us that there's another scale model of the solar system with the sun and planets near Otford in Kent. Um, and you can look it up. We'll put the link in the show notes. Apparently it's a cool place to visit, but... Just be careful because the footpath to Pluto is really muddy, and especially at this time of year, I'm sure that you should wear your gum boots. Otherwise, <laughs> wellies. 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 Uh, come on, you have Southern Hemisphere listeners. I'm sure that, that they know what gum boots are. <laughs> so at this site in Oxford, you can also see models of the nearest stars, but you'll need, uh, sorry, you'll, you can see where the models of the nearest stars are, but to visit them, you'll need a passport. Because, of course, on the scale of the solar system, the nearest stars are still really far away. <laughs> he also suggests that something else you can do if you have a scale model of the solar system at the same scale as the Oxford model is you can put a telescope at the position of Earth and then use that to look at the planets, um, which kind of has an interesting scaling to how you would see them from Earth as well with a telescope. So that's something fun to do, but you can't do it with the moon in the scale models. You can do it with... The you moon. The real moon. Um, <laughs> with the scale models, you can't look at the moon with a telescope because it's way too close for a telescope to focus. Uh, so that's something really cool. Uh, and I think if anyone's near Oxford in Kent, then you can check out scale model of the solar system there. Maybe we should arrange some sort of Jodcast field trip. Yeah, that would be cool. Where is Kent in relation to us? South. South. Okay. It's it's south somewhere. I'm sorry, Southern England listeners, the south. Uh-huh. I'm sorry, you're asking entirely yeah. the wrong people. <laughs> Southern I English was, geography. As the Australian, I was going to be like, how many hours drive to Kent, guys? But apparently not. I mean, everything in this country is, you know, 
about less than half a day's drive from here, I'd mm. say. We're fairly central in Manchester, aren't we? <laughs> Maybe we'll book a coach. <laughs> okay, uh, so we also got some feedback on Facebook from Joanne Mace, uh, who sent us a photo uh, taken on Christmas Day on the Pacific coast of Nicaragua, which sounds like it must have been a really lovely holiday, honestly. What's it like having a sunny Christmas, Laura? Amazing. <laughs> I think sunny Christmases are, are way better than cold Christmases, but I have a feeling that half of the world would disagree with me. But hey, who wouldn't want to have a barbecue and sit in the sun on Christmas Day? It does sometimes seem very appealing. <laughs> anyway, in this photo, we'll uh, put a link in the show notes, we have a lovely view of the setting sun with a little bright dot just above it. And Joanne is asking if any of us can help her identify what it is. You were going to say expert, but then you're really experts in this. Mm, we no, try our best. <laughs> none of us, none of us do optical. Excuse, speak for yourself. In a professional capacity. Of course you yeah. do in a hobbyist capacity. I, uh, you, you say that. I, I can't remember the last time I actually looked through just an amateur optical telescope. It sounds like when you do astronomy for your job, um, you then have significantly less time to do it as a hobby. But anyway, go on. <laughs> optical so, is great. Optical yeah. is great, and it gets you some really lovely pictures which you don't even need to spend hours fighting a computer to produce. It's true. <laughs> the, that's the dream. <laughs> anyway, so what I ended up doing for this was hopping onto Stellarium, which is a free sky-simulating uh, software, which can be quite handy for little bits and pieces like this. I actually used it uh, a bit early on, didn't mention it, uh, to see what Orion would have looked like in the year zero, which is about as far back as I could get it to go. And the answer is pretty much the same. <laughs> does it account, does Stellarium account for the motion of stars? I believe so. I think I've seen something, really something very similar to it used in a planetarium to sort of simulate the change over time. It certainly obviously tracks the planets properly. Mm. I'm not as sure about the stars. Does it do the not just the procession of the Earth, but the wibble on the procession? I cannot comment. I've never I've never used it in a professional cool. capacity. It's just that if you are a hobbyist and just want to have a nice look at the night sky in various places without uh, needing to fork out for plane tickets, it is a nice way to have a little look. We did get very off track there. Yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> so, but part of this is you can set it to any set of coordinates and any date and time. So I hopped back in time to the 25th of December at the time given, which was about half past five in the evening, and had a little look. And there are actually two planets setting above the sun at that particular date and at that particular time. Now, these two were Saturn and Venus. So if you if you like your optical, then you'll obviously know that Venus is going to be the brighter of those two by quite some margin. So with that in mind, because you can only see one bright object in this photo, apart from the sun, obviously, uh, I'm my entirely unprofessional opinion is that that is very likely Venus, and that Saturn is closer to the sun and isn't visible. In general, if you see something at either sunrise or sunset that's really bright, it's probably Venus. It's a good bet, and also makes you look really like smart if you're like, hey, look, Venus. Mm-hmm. And actually, another thing that you can do, uh, because Stellarium is, um, did you do that on your 
computer. I, I actually just use the online version. Oh, right, okay. Well, you can, I know you can, I've got one downloaded onto my laptop. There's also lots of apps that you can get on your phone that do a very similar thing um, that include using your phone's gyroscope um, to kind of track where you're holding your phone up to. Um, so in real time, if you're ever wondering, you know, what is this thing in the sky? Um, there are lots of free apps. Um, I, I won't name any particular ones because I'm sure there's been plenty since I downloaded the one that I downloaded years ago. Um, and you can, yeah, just hold the phone up to the sky and try and match what you're seeing um, with... Uh, with what's on the screen I think uh, some of them also do satellites as well so if you ever uh, wonder oh you know where's the ISS going to go for example if uh, you know that there's going to be an ISS pass again you can use that to kind of track where it's going to be across the sky and uh, things like that which is handy for Christmas time because you can say hey look it's Father Christmas exactly (laughs) (laughs) well that's that's extremely relevant for the January episode (laughs) it's relevant for the photo we can't say certainly that it wasn't Santa Actually, very good point. Very good point. Christmas Eve. Christmas Day. Maybe he was late. Yes, no, he was, yeah. That's him heading back. he was on his way to somewhere in a different time zone. Entirely possible. Yeah. See, it's never too early to get prepared for next Christmas. Exactly. (laughs) Well, on that festive note. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're, we're very good at getting things precisely on time. If you want to get in touch, uh, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And we are always available if you send us something in the post, like a postcard or a picture or something. The address is on the website. Thanks to Alexandra Lazarian for the interview. The editors were Adam Abison, George Bendo, Chan Zeidenhout, Hongming Tang, and Joseph Winicky. The producer was Fiona Porter. Until next time, jog on! Jog on!